reading in Ruth chapter 1, the first chapter of the book of Ruth. If you'd like to follow that in the church Bible, and you're not too sure where that uh, the little book of Ruth is, it's on page 267. Book of Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. 
The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Thank you so much, Ken. Good morning, everybody. I'm really uh, thankful that Ken chose the uh, English translation of Naomi rather than the saddleback Naomi, because uh, I'm going to be going with Naomi. Uh, please keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, it's really encouraging uh, for preachers here if uh, we look out and we see you looking at your Bibles uh, rather than looking at us. There's nothing particularly nice to look at looking at us. Let's, let's keep our Bibles open and uh, will you join me please as I pray and ask that uh, the Lord would speak to us uh, through his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your powerful and effective word. Thank you, Lord, that it has power to change lives, power to transform us inwardly by the renewing of our minds. And we pray, Father, for that process to be at work this morning as we look at this passage together. Please teach us. Please sanctify us. Please may we be transformed by the renewing of our minds to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. If you would uh, call yourself a person of faith this morning, I wonder if anyone has ever given you this advice. You shouldn't over-spiritualize things, by which usually people mean, uh, don't try and look for spiritual meaning or spiritual reasoning behind every little thing that happens to you. Uh, I've certainly been told that a few times over the years. Jonathan, you really shouldn't over-spiritualize things. Uh, there are those who over-spiritualize way more than I do, though. Uh, as a young Christian, I remember reading a book by someone who uh, wouldn't get up in the morning unless they had, quote, a word from the Lord, uh, and then would seek guidance from the Holy Spirit, and I'm not joking, as to which color socks they should put on each morning. Uh, I don't like to judge how others relate to the Lord, but I think perhaps that could be over-spiritualizing. I'll let you decide. As we begin a new series in the book of Ruth, I want to suggest that the bigger danger for Christians today is to under-spiritualize things, to fail to recognize that our God is always about his work, always working out his purposes in and through our lives, through every circumstance, every event, every apparent coincidence, every surprise, every delight, every disappointment, and yes, every struggle and tragedy too. It's one reason why I'm delighted to be teaching this book over these next few Sunday mornings. I've given this mini-series the overall title, The Hidden Kindness of God. And my prayer is that as we look at the lives of a very ordinary family going through some very difficult times, that we will recognize the hidden hand of God working, as he always does, for his glory and for the ultimate good of his people, or what he calls in the Old Testament his treasured possession. Uh, you may wonder what a book written over two and a half thousand years ago, covering a period in history over three thousand years ago, can possibly teach us here in Southampton in 2024. Well, let me remind you of what Paul writes in Romans 15 verse 4 about what we call the Old Testament. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, that is us Christians, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now, I don't know about you, but at the start of a new year, those are three things I certainly need. 
endurance, encouragement, hope. Endurance to keep going when things are tough. When you feel like giving up on church or giving up on faith or giving up on life even. Encouragement when I feel down and discouraged. And in a world where there is very little good news and where many feel hopeless and helpless, well, I want hope. Hope not just for myself, but hope to share with other people too, as we'll be doing this uh, coming week with the Hope Explored course. Let me remind you also what the risen Lord Jesus says to his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So as we study the book of Ruth, we should have a prayerful expectation that we will encounter the Lord Jesus as this intriguing drama unfolds. Uh, If you've watched, uh, read, or listened to any news whatsoever this week, you won't have been able to miss the reporting of how the power of drama can move people's hearts and bring about radical change. If you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, I encourage you to go and watch Mr. Bates versus the Post Office on ITV Catch-Up, or ITVX as it's now called. Warning, there is some bad language in there, but it's a drama. The story of Ruth may be uh, less dramatic, but it is infinitely more powerful, able to move hearts and change lives. If you're still unconvinced that it's worth studying what one commentator calls a, a charming little love story, Well, the opening line provides another connection to our world and our lives because notice these events take place, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. What were those days like? Well, just flip back a page to the last line of the last chapter of Judges. Just one page back. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Thankfully, it's not quite like that in Southampton, at least not everywhere, not all of the time. But there are pockets of lawlessness in our city and in our country, places where violence, injustice, chaos seem to rule. Uh, Some of you come from nations or cities where it is exactly like that much of the time. Everyone does as they see fit. Or what about verse 13? where Naomi, a believer, and one of the main characters in this drama, declares, the Lord's hand has turned against me. I imagine some of us here today, or those engaging online, feel a bit like that. Due to tough circumstances, it feels perhaps like God's hand is against you. Naomi is more explicit if you look at verse 20. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. Or end of verse 21, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. The language is really raw. But you see, here is a drama that can speak powerfully into the life of anyone here who has ever felt that way. Ruth is for anyone who thinks God has it in for me. He set his face against me. He's punishing me. Well, let's get into the detail of chapter 1 and see how this drama begins this week. And it is only the beginning but begins to point us to Jesus, the King of Kings, and encourages us to come to him for endurance, encouragement, hope, and as we'll see in the book, also for rest. To get to the heart of chapter 1, we're going to focus our thoughts around two simple headings this morning. First, in verses 1 to 5, we learn that running from the Lord in difficult times leads to emptiness. 
Running from the Lord in difficult times leads to emptiness. Uh, We could sum up verses 1 to 5 as the emptying of Naomi, as she and her family run from the Lord. Uh, Emptiness and fullness are key themes in the book of Ruth that point us to Jesus. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 set the scene and emphasize that we're not reading fiction, you notice. No, this is historical narrative, or put more simply, it's a true story, one that happened in the days when the judges ruled, more precisely, when there was a famine in the land. Uh, The land referred to is the promised land, the land into which Joshua, a couple of books earlier, has led God's people, a land flowing with milk and honey. That is a prosperous, fertile, fruitful land, a land of blessing. And so right away, I think the narrator wants us to be asking the question, why? Why is there now a famine in the promised land? Has God forgotten to be faithful to his promises? No. The reason for the famine is that these events take place in the days when the judges ruled, when everyone is doing as they see fit. In other words, God's people have forgotten him, have forgotten the importance of obedience to his commands, turned away from him. They've they've made other things or other people more precious than their relationship with the one true and living God. And back in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord promised that if the Israelites did forget him, if they failed to keep his commands, among the curses they would bring on themselves were scorching heat and drought. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. And no rain leads eventually, of course, to famine. So you see, in verse 1, God is being faithful to his promises. By turning away from him, God's people have left his protective shelter and are now suffering the promised consequences. And then notice immediately in the second half of verse 1, the narrator replaces his wide-angle lens and now zooms in to show us how this famine is impacting one family from Bethlehem in Judah. And if you have your New Testament reading glasses on this morning, you should be thinking, hmm, Bethlehem, that's significant, isn't it? Hold on to that thought. So these events concern a man from Bethlehem, together with his wife and two sons, who went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now again, that is so significant. See, the Moabites were the great enemies of Israel, to such an extent that God in his law forbids any Moabite from entering the assembly of the Lord, from coming into fellowship, even to the tenth generation. Now, it's hard to find a modern equivalent of going to Moab, but... It would be a little bit like a Christian today. You're going through a tough time. I don't know, you've lost your job, you've lost your home, struggling with the cost of living. And you say, well, do you know what? I think I'll head to the Middle East for a while. I'll I'll see if I can join the Houthis in Yemen, tack some ships for a while. Or or I'll head to East Africa and join Al-Shabaab. I'm sure they'll keep me well fed. That's the kind of idea. Uh, The story really comes to life when we understand that in Hebrew literature, names have meanings place names and people's names. And so Bethlehem means house of bread. And yes, we're meant to see the tragic irony. There's no bread now in the house of bread. And so Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, well, he doesn't act that way, does he? You see, through the famine, God wants to lead his people to repentance, back to him. It's an act of kindness. But instead, Elimelech leads his family away from the Lord to Moab, to the land of their great enemies. And the names of his two boys suggest great trouble ahead. 
Uh, verse 2 tells us his wife's name was Naomi. Now that's a lovely name. It means pleasant. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. Now Marlon means sickly and Kilion means failing or destruction. Now I am an unmarried man so I'm very reluctant to give any advice to parents uh, I'm certainly not an expert on babyness, but might I suggest that if you have two boys, it might not be the best parenting to give them the names Marlon and Killian. So, you know, it's just not a great start in life for them, is it? Unlikely to be in the uh, top 100 baby names, I think, of 2024. Well, tragically, things don't go well for this family in Moab, perhaps unsurprisingly. First, verse 3, you notice Naomi's husband died. Now, to lose your husband in a, in a culture with no welfare state, that is desperate. So no universal credit, no widow's pension, no food bank, no basics bank, no big breakfast. But fortunately for Naomi, end of verse 3, she was left with her two sons to provide for her. Uh, they married local girls, verse 4, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Now, not a wise thing to do. Many times in the Bible, God warns his people about the dangers of marrying those who don't share your faith. It's not about race, it's about faith. And well, things go from bad to worse for Nehemi and her daughters-in-law because look at verse 4. After they had lived there about 10 years, both sickly and failing also died, and Nehemi was left without her two sons and her husband. I don't know if you've ever hit rock bottom, what you would call rock bottom in life. Closest I've come is about 17 years ago, a long period of deep depression and anxiety, wondering if I'd ever work again, unsure where I would live, looking ahead and seeing only darkness and despair. Well, I think Naomi's situation counts as rock bottom, doesn't it? To lose your husband and both sons within 10 years? If we have any compassion, we'll understand why Naomi feels the Almighty has brought misfortune on her. And so by the end of verse 5, the emptying of Naomi is complete. And in that culture, especially at a time where everyone's doing as they see fit, her situation does look pretty hopeless. No husband or sons to provide for her, plus two daughters-in-law that she now feels responsible for. Running from the Lord sooner or later leads to emptiness. It's always been that way, of course, even from the very beginning. Adam and Eve were richly blessed with every good thing to enjoy in the Garden of Eden. God gave them just one clear boundary to keep them safe and in a close relationship with him. But they decide they want to be like God. Go their own way, make up their own rules for life. And well, soon they're hiding from God. Before long, banished from his presence. Running from the Lord in difficult times always leads to emptiness. But before we react too harshly against Elimelech and judge him for taking his family to Moab, we do need to pause, I think, don't we, and ask ourselves, don't we sometimes do the very same thing? When life gets tough, when you face a crisis, when you're in need, when you feel upset or ashamed or hurt or rejected or sinned against, well, I can't speak for you, but I know that far too often in my own life, I have run to my own version of Moab away from the Lord, rather than coming to him to seek his provision, his protection, his comfort, his help, his reassurance. See, going to live for a while in Moab is to look for security somewhere other than in the Lord. It's to put my trust in someone or something else. It's to move away from dependence on the promise-keeping God to independence. God hasn't come through for me. 
I'll do it my way. I'll work it out myself. And notice first one, they only went to live there for a while, just to get some food before returning to the Lord in the house of bread. But Naomi ends up staying 10 years. And instead of filling her up, the whole bitter experience empties her. But that always happens eventually. If I remove myself from the refuge and security of the Lord's promises. Look to have my needs elsewhere. Psalm 16 puts it like this. The sorrows of those increase who run after other gods. But before we all get too depressed, start feeling hopeless at the beginning of 2024, wonderfully, Naomi's story does not end in Moab. And let me say, if you find yourself this morning in your own personal version of Moab, your story does not need to end there either. Because in verses 6 to 22, we learn that returning to the Lord in his kindness leads to fullness. Returning to the Lord in his kindness leads to fullness. The main focus in this second longer section of Ruth 1 is on returning. It's hidden in our English translations because the Hebrew verb to return is translated in a number of different ways. And also we only really get a hint in chapter 1 of the fullness that comes from returning to the Lord. Those details get filled in for us next week in chapter 2. But notice this emphasis in verses 6 to 22 on returning. If you've got a Bible or device open, you'll find it really helpful to trace this through with me. So at verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. There's the first reference. Incidentally, that's one of only two references in the whole book where the Lord is spoken of as doing something particular on behalf of his people. He's at work in in the whole book, of course, but mostly in unseen ways. Let's continue to follow this thread of returning. Verse 7, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to or enable them to return to the land of Judah. Naomi urges her daughters-in-law, verse 8, go back, return, each of you, to your mother's home. Naomi then kisses them goodbye, but they weep aloud and say, verse 10, we will go back or we will return with you to your people. Naomi tries again, verse 11, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Again, remember the culture. Back then, a husband was the only way that a woman could be sure of being provided for and protected. Verse 12, again, Naomi, please return home, my daughters. And even after Orpah finally gives in and kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, Ruth, end of verse 14, clung to her. Now that is a really strong verb in the original Hebrew. It's the same verb used in Genesis 2 verse 24 to describe a man being united to his wife in marriage. Here Ruth shows that same level of commitment to her mother-in-law. Which, by the way, should be a particular encouragement to those here who are unmarried, or indeed widowed or divorced, because being single should not be, mean being excluded from any form of intimacy or commitment. I know, sadly, sometimes it does in the church, and I think we churches need to do much better to equip unmarried people to flourish and understand what godly intimacy looks like within the family of God. Well, still Naomi tries to dissuade Ruth. Look, verse 15, your sister-in-law is going back, returning to her people and her gods. Go back, return with her. Naomi shows something of how bad things have got for God's people in the days when the judges ruled. Naomi should know there's only one true God, the Lord. Gods of the Moabites are false gods. They don't even exist. 
And so do you see her thinking is confused, her witness unclear. But that's what being away from the Lord does to a believer. It spoils our testimony. And notice that it's Ruth the Moabite, an outsider, who actually displays the more obvious signs of a strong faith in Naomi's God, the Lord. Just look at this wonderful declaration of faith and commitment to both God and his people in verses 16 and 17. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back, return from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. At which point Naomi finally gives in and stops urging Ruth to return home. Eventually the two women arrive in Bethlehem in the house of bread and cause quite a reaction. Can this be Naomi? It may well be that they've just uh, noticed that she's come back without her two sons and with this strange Moabite woman that they don't recognize. Don't call me Naomi, she says. Call me Mara, which means bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, do you, do you see how she slightly rewrites history there? True, she went away full in the sense of having a husband and two sons. But remember, the very reason for them leaving the house of bread was famine. And so she left partly empty already, but this 10-year stay in Moab, away from the Lord, has finished the job. Now she really is empty and blaming the Lord for all her misfortune. Now again, we mustn't be too quick, I think, to judge Nehemi for her bitterness. Perspective is heavily influenced by the difficult time of the judges in which she's, she lives. And 10 years living away from the Lord in enemy territory is hardly going to have helped sharpen her theological thinking. And she does get some things right. She at least knows that her hard circumstances, however tragic and devastating, they're not outside of the Lord's control. That she's not simply a victim of circumstance or chance, but rather that her days and the days of her loved ones are in his hands. She knows that somehow, even if she can't fully understand it, the Lord himself has been at work in and through these tragic events. Remember, she only returns to the house of bread because somehow the message gets through that the Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food. So actually returning to Bethlehem is an act of faith. On the journey home, she wishes God's blessing on her daughter-in-law. May the Lord show you kindness, verse 8. And so I don't think we're meant to get the impression of Naomi as um, some bitter old woman who's turned her back on God, rejected the faith. After all, Ruth is desperate to return with her to Bethlehem. So you'd think she must have seen something attractive in her. Now I'm convinced Naomi is a woman of faith who has faced some terribly bitter experiences, but who is still trusting in the Lord, even as she works through all the complexities of her suffering. The emphasis in this section is that she is returning to the Lord and somehow in God's providence, despite her compromised testimony and strong objections, she brings Ruth with her. Ruth, who is going to prove to be key in Naomi's being made full again, but as we'll see, also key in God's greater plan to raise up a perfect king for his people so everyone will no longer do as they see fit. 
As I said earlier on, we only get a hint of the fullness to come for both Naomi and Ruth as they return together to the house of bread. But fullness is coming, and the narrator wants us to know it. So he drops this massive hint, you know, at the end of chapter 1. It is a bit of a cliffhanger. It seems like a throwaway line, but it sets up nicely for episode 2 in this box set. Notice in the wonderful providence of God, they arrive in Bethlehem, end of verse 22, as the barley harvest was beginning. So there's food again in the house of bread. Returning to the Lord in his kindness leads to fullness. And the invitation to return is open to any one of us here who has perhaps been away from the Lord, living for a while in your version of Moab. I know from bitter personal experience it's possible to be involved in Christian ministry and yet be away from the Lord or at least have a divided heart, divided loyalties. But I'm so thankful to the God of all grace who simply will not let his people go. The one who, when I foolishly wander from the truth and head to Moab, always knows the perfect way to get me to return. And if anyone recognizes themselves this morning in Naomi's testimony, perhaps you're right on the edge of going to your version of Moab for a while, you too can return, even this morning, not to the house of bread, but to the one who declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is speaking there about spiritual hunger and thirst. The invitation is also open to outsiders like Ruth who have never known what it is to live in the house of bread. People who have never encountered Jesus or responded to the good news about him. Jesus invites all of us who are tired of living in Moab. That is living outside of God's rule. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Ruth 1 shows us the hidden kindness of God to his wandering people in times of bitterness. He delights to lead his beloved people to repentance so he can fill us again and refresh us. Paul puts it like this in Romans 2 verse 4. This is the New Living Translation. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Uh, The hymn writer William Cooper, as I think it's pronounced, he was prone to series of uh, periods of doubt and depression. In his famous old hymn, he writes this to those who are struggling, maybe feeling the Lord's hand has turned against them. You fearful saints, that is all Christians, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. 